It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So glad we have opportunity to worship together. What a, what a powerful time of worship this morning. What a great reminder that, that when, man, when we're, when we're worshiping God, we're joining in on what's already going on in front of the throne. And we just get this incredible invitation to join the heavens, right? To join those who've gone on before us and, and um, the angels and the seraphim and just giving glory and honor to God. It's such a powerful reality that we oftentimes we need to remind ourselves of. Uh, so this morning, I'm excited. We're going to begin a new series uh, this morning. I'm going to be teaching through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, last week, Pastor Josh uh, finished uh, going through the book of Jonah, taking an Old Testament book, and now we're going to jump back into the New Testament, and we're going to kind of unpack over the next number of weeks together Paul's letters to the churches of Thessalonica. And it's very interesting to see just how much of what's going on there um, really impacts a lot of what's going on in our world today. God's word never um, uh, it, it, n- it never ceases to bring truth and direction. You know, I taught uh, a number of months, actually a couple of years back now, on the book of Revelation, and we spent some time going through that and had a number of people since that time came back and said, you know, Pastor, would you jump back into some end time stuff and some final, you know, uh, um, um, final prophecy stuff? And, and um, uh, as we enter into First and Second Thess- Thessalonians, um, Perhaps some of you may or may not know, First and Second Thessalonians is known as eschatological epistles. In other words, there, there's a lot of focus on uh, the last days, on the end times. Paul will address these subjects that I know many of you, especially in light of what, it, what seems to be going on in the world around us today, will see a lot of what uh, we see in Revelation also communicated through uh, the letters of Paul in the book of Thessalonians. But what I love about Thessalonians is I love how these epistles will hold in proper tension the importance of, uh, of embracing our salvation, right? What Christ has done for us on the cross, um, Equally, the importance of walking and living lives of repentance, as, uh, as well as uncompromising obedience to the Lord, walking in holiness, and then all the while looking forward to that moment when Christ comes for his church. And as we look through the book of First and Second Thessalonians, we will see a healthy balance, a proper tension on embracing what is done for us, how we are to live lives of holiness, and how we are to look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's important to hold these truths in uh, proper tension and, and not get hyper-focused on one particular area at the expense of the other. Right, and, and, and so that, I think that's what allows us to be well-rounded Christians, uh, biblical Christians. And so I'm calling this study through the book of First and Second Thessalonians, Hope and Holiness in a Hostile World. Hope and Holiness in a Hostile World. Because you know what? We're living in a hostile world. And they might not be directly hostile towards you, but they're hostile towards your Jesus. They're hostile towards the truth of God's word. And, and to the degree that we hold true and live lives of truth is the degree that much of that hostility will be directed towards us. But we have a hope, right? We have a hope that, uh, that does not disappoint. And so as we're on this earth, we are going to live lives of holiness and we'll see how the Apostle Paul presents these truths, holding them in, in proper uh, tension for us. Um, I want to open up this morning by giving some proper context, because if we don't spend some time just kind of understanding um, how this church started, a little bit about the area, uh, it won't allow for maximum impact in appreciating what Paul is going to say. And so context is, is tremendously important. And so um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And we'll begin to take a look at um, the beginnings of this church in Thessalonica. Uh, it's at this point in chapter 16 uh, that Paul is on his second missionary journey. Uh, he is traveling with a man named Silas. 
Uh, and it's there that they'll meet up with a young new convert by the name of Timothy, right? It's where we get first and second Timothy, uh, Paul's letters to this young convert. And the three of these guys will begin to travel together and bring the gospel of Christ to that surrounding area. So now they're together, and in, in chapter 16 and verse 9, just a little bit of backdrop, right? It's interesting what happens. Paul, in chapter 16 and verse 9, has a vision, and in his vision, this guy comes to him from Macedonia and says, will you come and help us, right? Well, obviously, Paul knows the only thing he has to help is the preaching of the gospel, because ultimately, that's what people need. So this man from Macedonia comes to Paul in a vision and says, will you come to Macedonia? Well, Paul snaps out of the vision, grabs Silas, grabs, Tim grabs Timothy, packs his bags, and heads on out from Macedonia, right? Doesn't have to pray about it, think about it, plan for it. Just goes knowing that this was in direct obedience to what the Lord was calling them to do. Macedonia is located in northern Greece, and uh, it's made up of several cities, this area of Macedonia, but Thessalonica is one of those cities, now, just a little backdrop on Macedonia. Macedonia was a place of idolatry, sexual perversion, and all kinds of crazy practices were offered up as acts of worship to the false gods. It was, it was part of their culture. It was entwined in who they were as a people. And if you can imagine, there was a thriving industry involving the sinful practices that people were, uh, so much so that people were getting, getting extremely wealthy on the sinful practices that were taking place. And so in Macedonia, in the midst of all the perversion and the idolatry and all this stuff, there was, there was, it, was a, it was a very lucrative business, right? The industry was extremely pagan and people were making buku bucks on the idolatry and the decadence of the day. Now, that shouldn't come too much as a surprise um, to us today. Uh, you know, when we consider the uh, pornography industry in the United States today, how many know people are making some stupid money on pornography today? Do you know that the pornography industry generates more income than ABC, NBC, and CBS combined? Do you know that the pornography industry generates more income than the NBA, the NFL, and the Major League, Major League Baseball combined? Crazy, crazy money in this industry. In fact, $97 billion a year just in the United States is generated just from pornography. That's not including what comes in overseas, by the way. That's just what's created in the United States of America. 97 billion. That's 3,000, over $3,000 every single second. Now you add to that disgusting industry, you add to that the gambling industry, alcohol, tobacco industry, not to mention the, the growing drug industry in culture, getting worse and worse with the, the legalization of drugs for recreational use. How stupid is that? Like, let's, let's blow each other's minds and call it recreation. Let's ruin the next generation and call it recreational use. Multiplied billions of dollars in the United States involved in sin, much like what was going on in Macedonia. Imagine the scene. Imagine there was a nationwide revival across the United States. I mean the real kind of revival, right? The kind of revival that, 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 that people turn from their sin, right? They fall in love with Jesus. They run away from the pornography. They run away from the alcohol abuse. They run away from the drugs and they turn to Jesus. Imagine a, a, a national revival hitting our land in such a way that the ways of the people, the culture completely shifts, it changes. Alcohol abuse is down, drug, is, drug abuse is down, pornography is down, so much so that it begins to hit the wallets and the pocketbooks of these sinful industries. People are coming to Christ in such droves. 
that begins to hit the pocketbooks of the pornography industry and the drug industry. How many know those who are losing money in those industries would do everything they possibly could to stop that revival in America? That is exactly what we see happening in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. In the midst of this land of sin, in the midst of this land of idolatry, in the, in the midst of this land where people are getting rich off the paganism of their day, in comes Paul preaching the gospel and people are embracing Christ and they are turning from their sinful ways. We see a little bit, a bit of a foreshadow of, of what is to come in chapter 16 and, and verse 16. There's a, there's a woman that is there. She's a slave girl who has a spirit of divination. She, she's a fortune teller. And she's making like buku bucks for her slave owners. And as Paul and Silas and Timothy are out spreading the gospel, she is following them around, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You think, wow, that's pretty good. She must have been a, a prophet too. Well, no, she was doing it in a very mocking kind of a way, in a way that Paul didn't want anybody to think that she was kind of running with them. And it says that Paul, greatly annoyed at this point, Cast the spirit out of this woman. And she's no longer able to tell fortunes. And her owners are ticked off because she is their meal ticket. They're making crazy amount of money because of her fortune telling. Now she's no longer able to do it because Paul cast the spirit out. And so they have Paul inside his Silas. They're dragged before the authorities. They're stripped naked. They're beaten with rods. And they're thrown in prison. Why? Because the gospel interfered with their idolatry and their ability to get rich. They didn't care about the message. They cared about the fact that it was affecting their lifestyle. And they go to the authorities Pretty cool thing that happens when, when these guys get thrown into prison. Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, they're in prison, and, and, and God sends an earthquake, right? And while they're in prison, the earthquake comes, and the prison doors just miraculously open. Now, if that was most of us, we'd be like, thank you, God, we're out of here, right? But Paul, not these guys, they didn't do that because they knew that if they left, that jailer would be put to death having lost these, these prisoners. And so they remained, and it caught the attention of the jailer, and they lead the jailer to Christ. How cool that is, right? But you see, the problem here was that Paul, and more specifically, the gospel just wasn't good for business. Because the more that people came to Christ, the less money that was to be made on the sinful activities of their day. And so they, they ran these guys out of town. And they ran them into a city called Thessalonica. And so now, you how, now we know how they got to Thessalonica. Let's take a look at what happens once in the city of Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, three Sabbath days is actually three weeks, one Sabbath day per week. He reasoned them for, with them for three Sabbath days, so it was three up to four weeks that Paul was there. And he reasoned with them with the, from, the, uh, from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And watch what happens. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Right? So here's what happens. Their custom was when they get into a city, first thing they do is they head into the, the temple and they begin to proclaim Christ as God. Right? And now he is persuading people. We see Jews coming to Christ. We see Greeks coming to Christ. We see the women coming to Christ. And you see the problem is when the women start coming to Christ, the word gets out all over the streets. Right? And now the gospel is spreading out. And what ends up happening is the Jews are jealous 
Why? Because momentum is changing. Shift, there's a shift in, in, the, in the culture. But the Jews were jealous and, and taking some wicked men of the rabble. What in the world are some wicked men of the rabble? Those are some hoodlums that are hanging out on the corner, just have nothing else better to do, right? Or are troublemakers. And they go and they grab these guys and they say, hey, look, it says they, they grab some wicked men of the rabble. And what they do is they form a mob. And they set the city in an uproar. Sounds so familiar in so many ways, doesn't it? And they, these wicked men of the rabble, they form a mob. They set the city in an uproar. And they attack the house of Jason, which is where these guys were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them, and they, all, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, it's Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest of them, they let them go. Interesting. Paul's in Thessalonica three to four weeks. He's preaching the gospel. People are turning, right? The Jews, the Greeks, the women, the gospel is going out. And look, notice the cry, notice the complaint that they bring before the people, before the authorities. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. May it be said of you and I, may it be said of our devotion to Christ, may it be said of our testimony that just our presence and our lifestyle turns the world upside down. Three weeks, these I mean, five weeks ago, they were pagans. And now just three to four weeks into this Christianity thing, the culture is changing. And they're getting nervous that the world is getting turned upside down. What are they nervous about? They're nervous about losing a whole bunch of money. There's a whole industry that's about to go in the tank because these Christians are turning the world upside down. And if that didn't upset the authorities, they're like, listen, and the other problem is they also say that there's another king other than Caesar and that his name is Jesus. We don't need to worship Caesar, which is what Caesar wanted. We can worship Jesus. Well, that's about all they had to have. He grabs some money from Jason and the people and he kicks them out of town, out of Thessalonica. The people and the city authorities, they're watching their influence, and even worse, their lucrative businesses slip through their fingers. Now Paul preached the gospel in all the cities of Macedonia. And as he's preaching the gospel in all the cities, people are, it's creating a stir. People have come to Christ. But nothing like was experienced in Thessalonica. This was like an all-out revival taking place in Thessalonica. The results here were unlike any other results they had experienced. It was an incredible response to Christ in just three to four weeks. The church is up and running. But the people in the city of Thessalonica were amongst the most sinful and decadent in Thessalonica before Christ of all Macedonia. That was the hub. That was the party place, right? That was when they wanted to go into the sinful city within Macedonia. Let's go to Thessalonica. A little background on Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province. It was a commercial center situated right on a major highway. And so because it was easily accessible, people could come and go very easily. And so it was, it was, it was right near the water area. And so it was a place where all the partying, where all of the idolatry, all the stuff would take place. When Paul wrote this letter, which was likely the earliest of his epistles, probably written around 51 AD, Thessalonica was the most important city in all of Macedonia because it was the main source of economic wealth for the entire region. Mostly that economic wealth was acquired by the sinful activity that took place in its ports. 
Thessalonica was a land much like Athens that was, it was full of idols. False religion was entwined within the, within the everyday affairs of life. It was, it was a part of their, their very culture. Sexual worship to the goddess Aphrodite was, was commonplace. Drunkenness, crime, prostitution, sacrifices, and all kinds of evil were not only present, but it was celebrated. And those who didn't participate in those things were considered outcasts. This has to sound a little bit like the culture in which we live today. You not only need to tolerate us, you need to celebrate us and accept us. The honor and celebration of the gods was not simply a, a private practice, but a, a public civil, civic affair that all of those in authority not only encouraged, but to participated in. It was part of their very culture. This was the Thessalonica of the day when the gospel came to town. But then people heard the gospel. They embraced it and ran from their sin and their idols and their practices. And what's amazing is all of this seems to take place in those first three up to four weeks of time. Now, there's some good indication that Paul went back and forth from the time that he left when they, when they were kicked out of the city to when he wrote this letter, but, but really wasn't any more than a couple of months. And so this young church is less than a year old. And, and I just want you to remember that as we continue to journey through this book, because this was like, this was an amazing re, a sense of, of maturity and commitment to Christ that, that these young believers embrace. It just goes to show how the power of the gospel transforms lives. I mean, think about it, three to four weeks, these Christians come to faith in Christ, and the cry is, they're going to turn the world upside down. You see, that's what the power of the gospel does. It transforms lives. I know that's a lot of context, but it really helps us to set the stage for us to appreciate not only the, the, the audience to whom Paul is writing to and what they're coming out of, but it really helps us kind of apply that to our hostile world today. Okay, so we've seen the birth of the church in Thessalonica. Now let's begin to look at what Paul has to say to the church in Thessalonica. If you have your Bibles, let's turn together to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to cover all of chapter 1 today, but don't get nervous. There's only 10 verses in chapter 1. And so that must, might have been perhaps the longest opening you've ever heard. Um, so uh, let's take, take a look together at 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, I'll give you a second to get there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, let's look together at verse 1. Paul Silvanius, Silvanius is a formal name for Silas, right? So Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now let me just kind of point out something that I find very interesting here. First and Second Thessalonians, more than any of the other epistles, you'll see Paul using the language of we more than any other one. And when he's referring to we, he's talking about his team, right? More than third, no more than 13 times, or no less than 13 times in this first chapter alone, Paul will make reference to the, the team that the three of them created. I just think that's really significant because it's not like Paul turned the world upside down, right? Paul was a part of a team of people that embraced the gospel and God, the Holy Spirit, throw, flowing through the team, brought the gospel to all the ends of the earth, just like we are seeing today. And it's important to me because it's kind of like, that's one of our values here at Integrity Church. Team ministry, right? The church doesn't rise and fall in any one person, but God brings into our local body those with gifts and, and abilities and talents, and together, out of an act of worship to God, we're able to fulfill what God has called us to do. Team ministry. And so we'll see that all throughout uh, the, these, these letters to uh, the church in Thessalonica. Verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith 
and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. Three things that Paul brings to remembrance and is thankful for is their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. I'm going to circle back there in a little bit, but just remember that. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, love, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full Conviction. I love this. Paul is pointing out here that their reception of the gospel was not just intellectual. It wasn't like they just changed their minds. It was powerful. It not only changed their minds, it changed their lives. It was transformational. It wasn't behavior modification that was taking place in the area of, of, of Thessalonica. It was transformation by the power of the gospel. They came face to face with Jesus and their lives turned around. This is the power of the gospel. It penetrates our hearts and our minds, and it brings about transformation. When you came to Christ, I, I hope you didn't just settle for a different belief system. I hope you didn't just join, feel like you just joined a religion or joined a church. It is the living, breathing, thriving relationship with the creator of the universe. And an embracing of the gospel brings about transformation in our lives. It brings hope to hopelessness. It, it brings clarity to confusion. It brings light to darkness. It brings life to death. It's no wonder Paul opens up Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's nothing that can change and transform a person's life like the power of the gospel. That's what he's saying here. He says, hey, you experience the, the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Let's continue. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. I love that. What he's saying here is, listen, I mean, you got to remember, the business was booming in Thessalonica. Everybody was engaging in the sinful activity. Now, all of a sudden, they come to Christ. They're turning from idolatry. They're turning from all the sexual practices. They're turning from all the pagan worship. And those industries are beginning to dwindle. And like I said before, what would happen, the same thing here, if, 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 if we saw major um, revival in America, they're trying to shut it down. And they're bringing all kinds of affliction upon the church because they're going against the flow of their culture. And what he's saying here is, you received the word in much affliction, but you, but you did it with joy of the Holy Spirit. You didn't let it set you back. So much so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I love that. I love what we're seeing here. It's a beautiful picture of discipleship. It's a beautiful picture of God working through the church. Paul says, uses the word of, he says, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. The Greek word here is exaheo. It literally means to ring out. Right? It sounded forth. It rung out from you or to circulate. It's where we get the word echo from. Echo. Echo, echo, right? It's where we get the word echo from. First service got it a lot quicker than you did, right? But it's where we get the word echo. Thank you from, from. It's where we get the word echo from. It's the idea that, 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 that it is, is, it, once they received the word of God, it echoed out of them. It reverberated out of them. It sounded forth from them. And that's what we see taking place in the church of Thessalonica. The gospel had come to them and it was going out from them. In three and a half weeks, by the way, they were pagan worshipers one day and they were spirit-filled evangelists the next. Look at the model. I mean, it's interesting. We see, so we see, obviously, Paul modeled Christ to Timothy. He modeled Christ to Silas 
And then he mentions now that Paul and Timothy and Silas, right? He says, we modeled Christ to you, Church of Thessalonica. And he says, and you imitated us and you imitated Christ, right? And then you, Church of Thessalonica, you modeled Christ to all the believers in Macedonia. And they're now following your example and so on and so on and so on in such a way that your reputation precedes you. Everybody has heard about what's taking place in Thessalonica. You see, what was happening in the church or the local church of Thessalonica highlights the importance of the local church. It's the place where the people of God gather together in a smaller community. We are a part of the universal or the Catholic, right? that's what Catholic means, right? Universal. We're a part of the, the, the universal church of Jesus Christ, but we are a local expression of the universal church. Not universalism, but the universal church of Jesus Christ. It's the place where the people of God gather together in a small community and we model and strive for Christ-likeness together. And as we're growing and we're sharpening and as iron sharpens one another and as we're, as we're doing life together and God the Holy Spirit is using us in each other's life to bring the best and sadly even the worst at times out of us, it's in those moments that we grow and we're sanctified. And as we're doing life together as a local church and growing, it's then that we start to be moved out from our four walls and we start to impact our community for Jesus. That's what we're called to do. And that's what we see taking place in this church. Now for today, what I want to highlight is something that I believe to be very significant in this chapter. If you haven't listened to anything I heard said this morning, now's a great time to tune in because I think what this, what this uh, next section that we see that I want to highlight, it really kind of sets in motion the structure or the outline of where Paul will be going in First and Second Thessalonians. I mentioned before that Paul points out three things that he's thankful for. And I want to present them to you as the three tenses of the Christian faith. The past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. Because we will see, we will see Paul will address them in the first chapter and then highlight the importance of each of these all throughout the writings of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so it's really important because it really puts some very critically important themes in proper perspective so we can hold these truths in proper tension and not begin to um, um, become... Uh, uh, hyper-focused on one at the expense of the other. He says this. He said he is thankful for your work of, their work of faith. This has to do with their, their active embracing of the gospel. The work of faith is about their, their coming to faith. It, it's that point where they recognize that Christ is their substitute, right? That they put their, their trust, their faith in Christ alone as the only means for their salvation. And he is, he is bringing to their remembrance and thankfulness their work of faith, the, the moment where they came into right standing with God. Such a significant and critically important place for each and every person, right? It's where we're born again. It's where we come to realize that my works, my religion, my righteousness, nothing I can do is capable of getting me in right standing with God. I put all my trust in Christ alone as the only means of my salvation. I put all my faith in him. And that's what they did, right? As Rich read out of Ezekiel, we talked about God you know, changing the heart of people. That's where it takes place when we embrace Christ and our heart is changed. So he highlights their work of faith and he talks about next their, their labor of love. He's thankful for their labor of love. Now, now that they've come to faith, he will, he will address the way in which they live their lives. They didn't just come to faith and continue in their paganism, and continue in their sin, and continue in their ways. They came to faith, and their lives changed. He talks about your labor of love. It speaks of, while, while, while their work of faith has to do with their justification, where, they, where, where they're justified before a holy God, their labor of love has to do with their, their sanctification, the working out of their salvation. And he said, I'm bringing to your remembrance your, your labor of love. And then he says also your steadfast hope. 
Now Paul affirms that this group of Christians not only embrace the gospel, but they have eyes on eternity as well. This has to do with our final salvation, our, our glorification, right? Where we will, we will be in the presence of the Lord. Things will be as they were intended to be. And, and we will see, as Paul will highlight, as we get further on, where he talks about the rapture of the church. He talks about the second coming of Christ. And we will see that while they are embracing what Christ has done for us, and they are striving to live lives of, of obedience and holiness, in the midst of doing that, they are looking for the glory return of Christ. Let's continue in verse 8. I think it kind of really brings it home here. Verse, verse 8 of chapter 1, he says this. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. I love the picture that Paul paints here. He's highlighting the three tenses of salvation. He talks about your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The fact that you've embraced Christ, that you've turned from your own plan of salvation and you put all your trust in Christ alone. He said, word has gone out everywhere that you've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, but not only that, he said, what also happened is that you have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. He's talking about the sanctification. He's talking about the fact that these new believers lived lives of repentance and uncompromising obedience. You see, repentance and obedience and living by grace need to be held in proper tension. If we hold, so many people, and I, man, I've been in the church for a long time, and, and I've seen so many different extremes out there, and, and, and I, I, I find one of two extremes often takes place. We see those who embrace grace, they're very thankful that, that it's by the grace of God that we're saved, and it's kind of like, wow, they so rest in their grace that they live sloppy lives, giving themselves permission to sin, and they tolerate things that are inconsistent with who Christ is, and they look and say, well, you know what? God knows my heart, and hey, I'm a work in progress. And they just condone and they let go. Remember Hebrews said, listen, it's not like you've resisted on the bloodshed, by the way, against sin, right? And you see, I see a church that is very anemic today because, hey, they love Jesus, but they're still living like the world. They're still compromising. They're still doing the things that they used to do and tolerating the things they used to tolerate. And Paul's like, listen, in the midst of embracing what Christ has done for you, man, live lives of holiness, right? Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the life of a Christian that we recognize that the only reason I can even respond to God is because of the grace of God. And as a result of that, the other side of that same coin is I'm going to live and strive to live a holy life that's pleasing to God. Too much grace without holy living only communicates you've never experienced and understood grace in the first place. The flip side is the legalist who gets spiritually prideful over their actions and their efforts and their disciplines and they're so quick to point out what everybody's doing wrong and everything else and they fail to recognize that it's by grace that we are saved through faith. And so what ends up happening is they start judging everybody and everything. Sometimes, hey, listen, these guys are only saved for three weeks. I'm sure there had to be some stuff that had to get worked out, right? They didn't know everything was sin right away and as the Holy Spirit is opening their eyes. So what am I saying here? Which one is it? It's both. It's both equally important. I'm saved by faith in Christ I am called to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. This crucified life needs to now be lived out as if Christ was living my life. And you know what? Sometimes that gets difficult, doesn't it? 
As a matter of fact, this young church who was going against the culture, as Paul said, they were, they were under harsh treatment and, and ridicule, and they were under all kinds of, of, of persecution. Paul's reminding them, listen, man, keep living lives of holiness. And we're going to talk about that. He lays out some really clear, get ready to get uncomfortable these next couple of weeks. But you know what? We need, to, we need to allow the word of God to make us uncomfortable. I will personally not look to make anybody uncomfortable. Maybe I'll point out a couple. No, I won't do that. No. <laughs> But you know what? If, 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 if we're not allowing to ourselves to get uncomfortable when confronted with truth, truth then we're never going to grow. And we're never going to be living what Christ is designed for us to do. And you get a, usually a steady pattern that usually suggests that someone never, maybe never even embraced him yet. And so holding in proper tension those things. It's always difficult for them. They were under persecution. They were under ridicule. They were, they were cast out. They were outcasts, right? And so Paul says, but listen, you not only are, have embraced Christ, you're not only living a life of holiness, but you're doing something else. You're waiting for the sun from heaven. You're realizing that life isn't about just what's going on right here. There's coming a day, right, where Christ is going to come for his church, the rapture of the church. Christ is going to come for his church. We'll read about that in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians. We're going to see that Christ is going to come back with his church in the second coming. And so he's saying, listen, as you're working out your salvation, I know it gets hard. I know it gets lonely. I know there's all kinds of setbacks, but don't, re- don't fail to remember that there's coming a day where Christ is going to come and we are going to be with him forever. And listen, whether, there's a, whether, they, whether he opens the sky for us and we see him that way or he opens the ground for us and we die one way or another, our life is not just contained here on this earth. There's coming a day where we will be with him forever. And so Paul is highlighting a proper tension that we must, and it's so important that we understand this because, as I said, there's so many different extremes that people hold to. We need to allow what Christ has done for us on the cross to drive and define our love for him. We need to live our lives seeking to represent Christ and holiness and, and living lives of uncompromising obedience and repentance and all the while looking up for that glorious day. And so in this, in this opening chapter, Paul is affirming that this church will not only model the three tenses of the Christian faith, right, past, present, and future, or justification, sanctification, and glorification, but he will also hold in proper tension how we are to reflect back on what Christ has done for us and saving us. How we are to live our lives by living holy lives, repentant lives, with uncompromising obedience, all the while holding tightly to the blessed hope that at any moment Christ can come for his church. Such a healthy and important balance for us to maintain. And sometimes we can get distracted and sometimes we can forget and sometimes we can, we can fail to remember and so I love how these three tenses of salvation are so beautifully communicated in communion. I'm going to ask our elders if they begin to prepare um, us for communion this morning. But I just thought, what a, what a great way for us to um, remember what Christ has, has done for us. Because really, when we think about communion, communion is the gospel, right? It is Christ having his body broken for us. It is Christ shedding his blood for us because we were incapable of, sinning, of saving ourselves. You could begin to pass that out right away. We are incapable of saving ourselves. And so when we, tie, when we participate in communion, we are reminded that it is not by my works of righteousness that I can come, but it's solely because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. And so when Christ calls us to come and do this in remembrance of him, he's reminding us to to reflect back on what Christ has done for us. He He calls us to remember what Christ is doing in us, and he also calls us to look at what is ahead. And that is the beautiful picture of communion.
Christ shedding his blood for us. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes and says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I love that. See, what Christ is doing is he's calling us to remember what he's done for us. It's that moment where I realized that, man, he stepped into my darkness and he brought light. He forgave me of my sins. He, he canceled the debt of sin that was against me. He erased my guilt and my shame. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and he, he made me alive together in Christ Jesus, right? It's that moment where Christ stepped into my life. And Jesus calls the church to remember that the grounds by which that happens, the means by which that happens, is Christ's broken body, Christ's blood being shed, his sacrifice. You see, it's important for us to remember that because sometimes we sin. Sometimes we get caught up and we fail in an area and all the guilt and all the shame and all the, the distancing. You ever feel distant from God? You feel like, man, I just, I completely blew it and, and I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway and I've got no grounds to stand on whatsoever. And we've all, we've all journeyed through that and, and, and really, you know, turned the, the, the shame game up in our own head. Well, it's here we need to remember, wait a second, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ came to forgive me of those sins. And instead of beating myself up, I'm going to remember there was a reason why I wasn't on the cross. I belong there. Christ went there for me. If I'll confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I am a child of God. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. Right? We need to remember that sometimes. Look what Paul says here. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, it's working, out. It's working it out. It's recognizing who we are, and it's also recognizing he's coming for his own. But look what he says here. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. He says this. Here's the instruct. Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died but we have, if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. It's a call to take a moment of pause and do some inventory, to work out our own salvation, to consider how our lives are reflecting the call to holiness that we are called to live out. And he says, before you partake of the cup, take a moment and examine. And if there's areas in your life that you fall short in, Ask God's forgiveness. Cleanse. Clean the palate, right, with the blood of Christ. And so let's just take a moment and let's just do a personal inventory. Let a man examine himself. Lest we partake in an unworthy manner. Maybe you're here this morning and you're caught up in some things. You don't know how to get out of it. I would encourage you to come to Jesus. He'll bring you through. Maybe you're in, 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 in a bad relationship. You need to dissever that thing. If it's getting in the way, anything that's getting in the way with your walk with God. Maybe you're caught, maybe, maybe as I talked about even pornography earlier on, you know that in one way or another, you've, you've contributed to that growing industry. And when I mentioned it, shame filled your heart. Well, God doesn't want you to walk in that shame. He wants you to repent of that sin, turn from that and receive his forgiveness this morning. Maybe your marriage is broken. Maybe, maybe there's relationships that, are, that need 
to be worked on. This is a place where we, we ask God to examine our hearts. And we ask that our lives would reflect the life of Christ. We ask forgiveness. Not just forgiveness that we got caught, but forgiveness because it's wrong. And we're going to turn from that and live a life of holiness. That's what Paul was encouraging us to do. When Jesus sat with his disciples, that's what he wanted to call to their remembrance as well as to ours. In the midst of the Passover, he, broke, he, bra- he grabbed the bread and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Not just because of you, but for you. He said, eat this to remind you that it was broken for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Thank you, Lord. And likewise, he took the cup. He said, this is the new the cup of the new covenant that's in my blood. Jesus shed his blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He became our sacrifice because of the blood of Jesus being shed. The sin can get washed away. If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, drink this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together in remembrance of Christ. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for, Lord, how it, it comforts the disturbed and it disturbs the comfortable. Lord, as we begin this journey through First and Second Thessalonians, we, we seek to hear what you'd have us to hear. I pray, Lord, that we'd apply these truths to our lives in such a way that our lives would reflect you in the world in which you've called for us to point others to you. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the joy that we have in Christ, the, the plan and purposes that we have because of you. I pray, Lord, that as, as, we, um, as we reflect on your great gift, that it would cause such a great love in each and every one of our hearts for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.